0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, UPC.org. Well, there is a man walking on the beach in California, and he found a lamp on the ground, picked it up, and of course, you know, you rub it, and he rubbed the lamp, and a genie pops up. And genie offers him a wish, and he says, Well, you know, I've always wanted to get to Hawaii. He looks out over the waves, and, but I'm terrified of flying, and I get seasick in a boat, so guess my wish would be could you make a bridge from california to hawaii so i can drive and uh genie just shakes his head and says that's impossible i mean the amount of cement that it would take the depth of the pacific the the moving tectonic plates the tides there's just no way that can't happen so you got to give me another wish he says well um, all Um, yesterday, my girlfriend and I got in another argument and, uh, you know, I just never know what the right thing to say is. She says, you don't get me. So I wish that you would help me understand my girlfriend. Jeannie thinks about that for a second and says, would you like that highway with two lanes or four? (laughs) Because relationships are hard. And I want to talk to you tonight about some of the challenges in our relationships. Think about the people in your life. I mean, this time of year, as we try to build margin into our lives and find our center and rest in Jesus Christ, what could be more important than our relationships? But also, let's be honest, what could be more exhausting uh, than our relationships? They can suck the life out of us. Two, uh, Christmases ago, our family went to the mountains to ski and my extended family was there. We were all in this little teeny, uh, apartment and it was a great time. I have a great family, but I just got, you know, I got, I got to my limit and I found myself one night about 10 o'clock and I, I just had to leave. I had to give myself a time out and I'm out there walking. It's about 10 degrees, uh, in the dark and the cold, walking around the apartments, just kind of stewing, feeling exhausted. I felt, hurt, uh, misunderstood, and alienated. Alienated. How's that possible? The people that I care about more than anybody else on the planet were all in that apartment, but uh, they did not feel like family to me uh, that night. I wonder if, if you can relate to that experience. Richard Swenson is a physician, and he wrote a book called Margin. I referred to it last week. In there, he says, perhaps the greatest root cause for the absence of emotional rest in our society is fractured relationships, fractured uh, relationships. Now, Jesus wants to address this. We're told that the good news of that first uh, Christmas Eve is peace. The angels say, glory to God and peace on earth among men with whom he is well-pleased. And so how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus bring rest, peace, into relationships that are otherwise fractured. Well, let's attend to his teaching tonight. Let's go to Jesus, the master teacher in the gospel of Matthew. Would you please pull out your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. If you're grabbing the black book in the rack in front of you, turn to page 788. And there you'll find Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's Word aloud together as a congregation. By the way, this passage is not read that often in church. It's not in any of the common lectionaries that different denominations use. So it's kind of a treat to be able to read it together in worship. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the God. Uh, If you believe it, uh, you could say, thanks be to God. Listen closely, you're reading God's Holy Word. Do not judge. So that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how could you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. You might want to keep the book open. We're looking at it together. To me, these words ring true to Jesus. I wonder about you. Don't you notice this kind of earthiness that's characteristic of the way Jesus tells these stories? I mean, you can just picture him as a as a young boy in his father's workshop. Remember, Joseph is a carpenter, and there's sawdust flying all around as they work together. And all of a sudden, he gets a speck in his eye, and you see this father tenderly leaning over to see if he can get that little piece of sawdust out of the boy's eye. It's kind of earthy. It's a real situation that we can all relate to. I also find this true to Jesus because it's a playfulness. Um, I think we get a glimpse of the humor of heaven. I just imagine that this is kind of a laugh line, this idea that you could have a log in your eye. I mean, people are laughing, and I think in the town down below, you could hear two men having a conversation. The guy says, what was that sound? I don't know. It sounded like laughter. It's kind of a roar. Oh, yeah, it was up there on the mount. I see a bunch of people, and that guy, Jesus. He's teaching again. Wherever he goes, there's There's laughter seems true to jesus also finally because of the insightfulness of this uh, many of us don't see ourselves as needing an encouragement not to be judgmental but i think the moment we say to ourselves this lesson is not for me it's for somebody else we've fallen into jesus's trap haven't we this lesson is exactly for the person who doesn't see that they're the ones who have the need and this is so typical of jesus the way he cuts right to the core As we look at the text, there are a few concepts, three, that I want to um, interact with you about. They keep emerging here, and they are measuring, things that are being measured here in this passage, and then seeing. There's a tension between what is seen and what is unseen. And then finally, receiving. He talks about what you get. So let's look at those three concepts in turn. First, measuring. Jesus says in verse 1 there, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Do not judge. Now, what does that mean? I mean, surely Jesus doesn't mean we shouldn't make any moral judgments. Is that possible? Don't make any moral judgments? This doesn't seem consistent with Jesus. And don't you wish these days, like I do so often as I read the political news of our day, that that we would make more moral judgments, that people in office and people who elect uh, people to office, that we would bring an ethical sense to our decisions, and that they would as well. It seems like the American media today has decided that Americans are more willing to put political power ahead of moral discernment that we're more interested in advancing our tribal agendas than we are in character and virtue. This, to me, seems more consistent with the regime of Herod than the kingdom of Jesus. No, we are meant to make moral judgments. Just look at the very next verse in which Jesus says, don't put pearls before swine Back up a little bit and see the context of the passage. Jesus is saying to the people on the mountain, "You're the light of the world, salt of the earth." Meant to live that way. He raises the ethical standard on us as his followers. Or fast forward to Matthew 18, where he says, "If your brother or sister sins against you, then go to them, raise it with them, but do so privately and graciously." So now, we're 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 making moral judgments, but what then does this mean? Do not judge. Well, the word judge here, I think in this context, means to render a verdict. Do not render a verdict on somebody else's life. Do not condemn them, I think he's meaning. Next time this word will be used, I believe it's in Matthew 23. There, it's Jesus using it again. He says, the, uh, the Son of Man, you'll see the Son of Man sitting on the throne of his glory. Of course, he's referring to himself when he comes back as judge to sit in that one seat that's only to be occupied by the son of man, Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, don't sit in my seat. That's not your place. He's not saying don't use your moral compass. No, but don't assess the moral compass of other people as though you were somehow their judge. That's what he means. Now, I think in America today, we, we, we say we don't really judge people that much anymore, and that would be a good thing if that were true, you know, and we say you do you, and we, we tend to try to be very accepting, and that's good, but I wonder if we do maybe render verdict more than we realize. The, the, the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't stop with the word judge. He adds in parallel with it this idea of measure. He says, with well, the measure, uh, you give will be the measure that you get. And as I read that, I think, you know what? I do measure. I measure a lot. I even do measure people. It, when I meet you for the first time, I just can't turn it off. I, I'm sizing you up. And I think we all do that. We we make conclusions about uh, people based on, you know, what they uh, uh, wear, how they smell, uh, wh- what kind of car they drive, what kind of music they listen to. We're making these assessments about their strength or their intelligence, their fitness, their education, their influence, their wealth, all these things. Trying to figure out who's in, who's out, what ma- who matters, who doesn't matter, who could be useful to us, uh, who might be dangerous to us. Now, the problem with this is what we do when we're measuring other people like this is over time, we begin to create a measuring stick. And that measuring stick sits in our souls. We measure people subjectively because today, especially, we don't have any sense that there's an objective measurement for our lives. So what standard do we use other than ourselves? In that sense, we're constantly comparing ourselves to one another. And every time I recalibrate this measuring stick and extend it as I create criteria for the people that I would value in my life, the blowback there is that I'm implicitly measuring myself with that same stick. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, you know, the measure you give is the measure you get. It's going to come right back at you, so be very careful with that. See, the problem with this measuring stick is that it becomes a burden to ourselves. And you may say, George, I don't see a measuring stick in my life. You may not. But what you might notice in your life, or maybe more likely the people around you would notice, is that sometimes you may seem insecure or perhaps overly sensitive. Perhaps you're obsessed with people's opinions about yourself, how you come across, how you look, whether people are friendly with you behind your back or not. Sometimes we find ourselves becoming defensive or or jealous or easily hurt or angered, managing our image or hiding from others because we don't want them to see what we fear they would judge. And so with this measuring stick in our souls, these behaviors show up. We take this measuring stick not only into our own souls, but we also take it into our relationships, and this is where we start to get fatigue and You may not see that measuring stick in your relationships, but you might see these kinds of behaviors that are likewise indicative, a critical spirit, a tendency to look at what's wrong in the situation or in the person, to go quickly to judgment, or, this is so true of me, to be constantly correcting people. I have to admit that oftentimes I'm correcting people's grammar, even in my head. If I don't do it externally, um, you know, I'm an English major. and This is kind of an occupational hazard for us. I'm like a skin doctor at the beach. You know, when you say something to me, I'm thinking, "Wow, the subject and the verb weren't agreeing with one another there." Or, you know, my parent, my family, they ask me a question. And I think first of all, I'm going to tune up your question before I answer it. It wasn't precisely correct, you know. Or I get an email from someone. I go, "That's not even a sentence. I don't have to answer that, right?" And, you know, I'm sorry about that, but uh, I tend to do that. And, and we tend to, oftentimes with people that are closest to us, when we have this measuring stick in our souls, um, we try to constantly improve them. We're trying to raise them by another increment up the measuring stick. And we think this is our gift. This is our gift to you to kind of make you a better person. And you realize, I've turned you into a project. And Jesus is saying, man, that's going to exhaust you. That's going to enervate you. It's going to stress the relationship. So he doesn't want us to measure like this. A.W. Tozer writes a wonderful book that I recommend to you. It's called The Pursuit of God. It's a very brief book, and it's refreshing to read. And he says this, The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight to shield its, I like this phrase, touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy will never let the mind have rest. See, we're constantly on the defense. We're like, oh, did they mean that in a negative way towards me? What does that mean to me? He says, our, our, our need to defend ourselves against every slight, every uh, to shield ourselves, our, our, our touchy honor, the touchy honor of our heart, will never let the mind have rest. And so there's fatigue. Measuring. Why do we do it? Well, perhaps it has to do with what we see. Let's move to the second observation here that there's a lot in the text about seeing. Jesus says, for example, in verse three, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Seeing. There's a lot here about the eye. The eye comes up several times. And notice again, Jesus is raising questions, just like last week he's interrogating his disciples to give them insight. He's raising, why do you see this? Or how could you say you see that if this? And he's playing on this idea that, you know, your eye, um, you can't see your own eye, so when you do get something in your eye, you have to have somebody else help you, right? You, can you? Is there something in my eye? And, of course, if you had something large in your eye, like mm, a log, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to see much else. And so there's this tension between what's seen and what's unseen, what we can see, what we can't see that others might be able to see. It's kind of an interesting uh, uh, set of questions here. Now, I'm a bike rider, and I pull up to an intersection. It's that intersection here uh, between Husky Stadium and uh, University of Washington Medical Center. You may know that intersection. And I'm I'm riding on my bike, and the path there is mixed-use, pedestrian, cyclist. And I'm coming up fast on my bike, and there's a woman who's walking ahead of me. She's walking right in the middle of the path, right? I mean, of course. She's right in the middle. And so I come up behind, and I say, on your left? And she doesn't move at all. So, you know, and here's what I see. I see the woman, and then I see she's not moving, and then I see she has earbuds in her ears of, you know, figures, right? So I go way around, I come back, and I move towards the intersection. I see the... The light is red, and so I stop, which is lucky because I also see an automobile that's uh, stopping hard and crosses over the stop line r- right into the sidewalk. You know, six feet. It's a body bag's length into the sidewalk. The car is just sitting there kind of blocking, right? I see that, and I'm like, And then... Um, I don't hear it, but uh, from behind, another cyclist is coming up behind me. And as I apply my brakes, there's this flash of spandex. This is a real cyclist. And he blows right through that intersection. I see him go through, and I see the red. And I'm going, that idiot, you know, look at that. And uh, and there I am. So I see all this. and, And I see it really clearly. And now I've got Jesus coming up behind me going, Hey, George, what do you see there? It's not that he questions what I see. I think it's the questions maybe what I don't see. That maybe I don't see everything that's happening at that intersection. At least not as he sees it. Several years ago, there was an article in the New Yorker magazine called, Why are smart, why smart people are stupid? I thought that was kind of interesting. So I felt compelled to read the article. I want to find out which one I was. The article is on what they call uh, bias blind spots. It reports on the research of a professor from James Madison University and University of Toronto. And they've done this very interesting study uh, on bias blind spots. And what they showed fairly convincingly is that you and I tend to be really good at seeing the mistakes of others and really bad at seeing our own mistakes, And uh, the hypothesis is that when we evaluate other people, we look at their actions, but when we evaluate ourselves, we look at our intentions. We say, that looks really bad, what you did. It may look really bad, what we did, but we know why we did it, you know? So we've got a rationale for it. What's interesting, though, is they said, the smarter you are, which is measured in their case by how high you score on the SAT, "the, the bigger your bias blind spots are perhaps because you have an increased capacity to be clever with your rationale. (laughs) And even further, and this is the scary part, they write, quote, people who were aware of their own biases were not better able to overcome them. Even when you know that you have bias, implicit bias. It does not help you overcome the bias. Now, that's when you feel, I feel really stuck with that. Like, what do we do if that's the case? And it, it means we have there's something below the cognitive level that we need to pay attention to, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying there's a spirit world here, and it's the unseen world that I want to call your attention to because that's the thing that really shapes what you see and don't see in your relationships. My wife and I were with a, a couple, um, they were doing, they were marriage counselors helping us with our marriage several years ago. And they taught us something. It was interesting. They said this, George and Ann, in order to understand someone, you need to stand under someone. It's kind of corny, but it stuck with us. In order to understand someone, you need to stand under them. This is what the way they said it. They said, you know, when you guys are in an argument or even just trying to understand each other, neither one of you sees truth with a capital T, like objective truth. God sees it, but neither one of you sees the whole of it. You only see your own truth, lowercase t. And so to listen well, to really understand someone is to sit under their story as they tell it. Let them tell your truth. Now, you don't correct that you don't be defensive about that or have to modify just listen and take it in and so this is your truth and then you reverse and the other person hears your truth and what they were encouraging us to do is see through each other's eyes you see it's only as we see through one another's eyes that then we have the capacity to see everything that can be seen in that moment what is it that we don't see Just think of that intersection by Husky Stadium. What if? I mean, isn't it possible that that woman who was walking in the middle of the path may have just come out of rehab, six weeks of rehab, and perhaps this is the first day she's been able to walk outside at all, and she's very unsteady, stays right in the middle of the path. Maybe that's true. And what if that car that moved forward into the sidewalk did so because they're trying to make space for an ambulance or a shuttle that was coming up from behind and needed to get there to create out of consideration? What if the guy who rode by on the bike was, was actually on his day off, but he's a physician and his specialty is needed because there's a child in the operating room right now? This life is in the balance. I mean, what if? I mean, I didn't see any of that, but that could have been the case. Jesus saying, don't be so sure when you measure someone or yourself that you see everything there is to see. A man called his wife from London to see how she was doing. He said, honey, how are you? And she said, oh, I'm fine, but the cat died. The cat died? He gasped. Yeah, um, paws fell off the roof and just died. And he was stunned. Particularly close to the cat, apparently, and uh, after a while he regained his composure and he was really angry. He said, "How can you just tell me that just like that? You know, I call up and you say the cat died. I mean, this is so insensitive. This is kind of the way you always are." And he was right into it, you know, and she got into it too. She said, "Well, wh- what did you expect me? How how am I supposed to say it?" And he goes, "Well, you know, I mean, I I don't know. I'm in London. You you could have said, you know, the cat's on the roof." And then when I get to Paris and call, you could say, you know, the cat fell off the roof. And when I get to Hamburg, you could say, you know, the cat's not doing so well. And when I get to Rome, you could say the cat died. And then, you know, I'd kind of be ready for it. And she said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry. So how's mom? And she said, she's on the roof. (laughs) You know, the point is, uh, there's no good way to share bad news. But what Jesus is trying to do here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is share good news. He's trying to share good news with us. He does not want us to live under judgment. That's why he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Let's move to receiving. Jesus is inviting his disciples to receive something other than judgment. He says in verse 5, take the log out of your own eye. And I, I, what would take the log out of our own eye? Grace. That's the thing that does it. God's grace in Jesus Christ is the only thing that will take the log out of our eye. He's saying, receive grace. He addresses his audience, I think, a little bit playfully here as hypocrites. Now, but this is the word hypocrite that he oftentimes uses of the Pharisees in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And we tend to think of the Pharisees as bad people, but really, Pharisees were not known as sinners. They were not bad people. They were generally very good people. They were a reform movement uh, trying very hard to measure up to God's standard. The problem wasn't that they were bad people. If there was a log in their eye, the log in their eye was that they did not receive grace. They didn't know how. They were constantly striving to do better against the measuring stick. And and nobody can. Nobody can. So Jesus says, receive grace. You know, the measure you give will be the measure that you get. And if you want to give grace in your relationship, you have to first get grace from God. You have to see God in the person of Jesus We have to see the cross. When we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, this is the first place in our lives that we even know what real rest is. We don't have to keep striving with our measuring sticks anymore because there's absolute forgiveness. There's perfect love. There's an embrace and a delight in who we are. It's at the cross that we see God saying no to all of our human unrighteousness, but yes to us as humans. You are mine. You know how much you're worth to me. You're worth the life and death of my one and only son. (laughs) That's a new measuring stick for your life. The cross is the place that breaks and throws away all other measuring sticks. What Jesus wants us to see here is that he doesn't want us to live under judgment. That's why he's giving this teaching. God, John tells us, came into the world in Jesus not to condemn the world but to save it. He's on a mission of love. He loves you. He's trying to call into an existence this community that knows we will always fall short, but knows what to do with that shortfall. We bring it to the cross. We receive grace again and again and again from our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the problem with judging one another is that we're stepping outside of the gift of grace to do so. That's the real threat here. You and I have righteousness, If we have real righteousness only in relationship, only in communion with Jesus, every time we step out and judge ourselves or somebody else, we're stepping aside from the righteousness of Christ, which is God's free gift to us. But when we stay in Christ and receive this grace, we see people differently. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying when he says, Christians always see other women and men as sisters and brothers, all people, as sisters and brothers to whom Christ comes. Christian love sees the other person, Bonhoeffer continues, under the cross and therefore sees with clarity. The wood that matters, it's not the speck in the eye, it's not the log in the eye, it's the wood of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we need to see that if we are to see well. Mark Laberton is a UPC alum and he's now the president of Fuller Theological Seminary in Los Angeles, and recently I heard him tell a story about a woman in northern Uganda. She was poor, living in a war-torn area. But every night she crossed tribal and enemy lines in order to be with children who were displaced near her home, one town over. It was an area of um, a refugee camp, just hundreds of kids without parents. And Mark Laberton was visiting this camp and he met this woman and he, he was just so impressed with how she came over. She had so little and she after she ate her dinner every night, she'd bring what little food she had, mostly just to be present and care for the kids. And he asked her, why do you do this? And she was a bit coy. She said, well, because they're children. He said, Yeah, but why do why do you do this? She said, Because they have so much need. And he says, Oh no, but why do you come and do this? And she says, It'd Be cool, because I live nearby. He said, Yeah, but there are other people who live nearby, and other people are adults, and other people have a little bit to share, but they're not here and you're here. Why do you do this? And she paused and she said, Well, I don't know if this makes sense to you, but you see, I'm what they call a Christian. And we have this meal that we eat. And we understand as we eat this meal that we are eating the life of our Savior and that we're receiving his forgiveness into our lives. And Mark Labrador this was the most amazing thing. She said it so simply. You see, I'm what they call a Christian. And when she comes to the Lord's Supper, she doesn't just see bread and wine, she sees the body and blood of her Savior, Jesus Christ. She sees what is unseen. And this is what Jesus is inviting us to do as well. I, I wonder how you see your relationships this Advent season. I wonder how you would like to see your relationships in light of the gift of the Christ child. For myself, I wonder if I will have another opportunity to walk around the apartments in 10-degree weather as we go skiing again as a family. I just, I might. And if I do, here's what I want to see differently because of how we've worshipped tonight. I want to first look to the cross of Jesus. Jesus. I want to be reminded of how great his love for me is, that he loves me and that he cares for me and that he is my primary and sustaining and all-sufficient relationship, Jesus. And then I want to start to look at the people in that apartment, particularly the ones that have annoyed me. And I, I want to see that they are, like me, a work in progress and that there's something wonderful happening in their life because God loves them just like he loves me. And maybe they can't see it yet, but I'm willing to see it on their behalf. And I want, him to, I want to see that God wants to do a new thing in those relationships more than I can imagine. I wonder about you. I wonder if you look at the wood of the cross and then the people in your life and you'll say to yourself, you see, I'm, I'm going to do this different because I'm what you call a Christian, which means I can see what's not seen here. Advent is just a great time to take a second look at our relationships. Advent is the time when we're asked to approach with wonder the mystery that in a manger, which is which is just, you know, a manger is just a feeding trough. It's just a couple pieces of wood stuck together. There's a baby. And to to every eye, it's just the most ordinary baby in the world. But to see in that baby the creator of time and space, to see the one who holds the molecules together and the planets, the heavenly spheres, to see God in flesh, this is what it means to be an Advent people, to be a Christian. I want to close with this. I think one of Matthew's favorite words is the word behold. And it's actually in this passage, but it, it doesn't show up in our translation. Behold. Matthew uses the word 64 times. And it means, look. It's an interjection that always comes with an element of surprise. When you think you've seen everything that there is, Luke will say, but behold, but look. Look. Look at what's not seen here. All of a sudden there's a glimpse of it and he starts his gospel with the word behold. He says, behold, look, an angel. And he says, behold, look, a virgin. And then he says, behold, look, magi. And then he says, behold, a star. And off to the races he goes again and again all the way through the gospel helping his readers to see what's unseen and what no one else can see but the, thing, the one thing that's unseen can change everything that is seen until he comes to the very end. Because he knows that at the end of the reading of this gospel, he sends his readers back into troubled and fractured relationships and he wants them to go with hope. So here's how he closes his gospel. Behold, he says, look, and this is Jesus speaking, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Jesus, walk with us tonight. We dare not walk alone. We dare not look at only what is seen. We pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts, just as your word in the book of Romans promises you will do. Pour out your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that we might love with your love because of your grace. Help us to be people who offer the world the grace that you have offered us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.